Ben McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We are huge fans of your work. And in fact, we like to call you the nonfiction John Le Carre. So thank you for joining us. It's a huge pleasure to be here. And I'm very flattered by that comparison. That's very kind of you. The new book is Agent Sonia. It's out in paperback. Would you set up this book for readers, please? This book was a bit of a departure for me, actually, for two reasons. One, that it is written from the perspective of a woman, which I've never done before, although many women appear in my books. And it is from the point of view of a communist, you know, a lifelong dedicated servant of the Soviet state who really, though she had doubts, never wavered in her communism. And so in some ways, it's the view from the other end of the telescope. I came across Sonia really by accident, as many of the best discoveries are. I was actually researching a completely different story uh, about an American operation towards the end of the war, an intelligence operation where they were parachuting anti-Nazi Germans into the Third Reich. It's a very little-known story, but it was um, it was an extraordinary attempt, really, to spy on the dying days of the Nazi regime. And in Britain, the Americans were recruiting Germans to parachute into Germany. And there was this shadowy woman in the background who was helping them to recruit these kind of Germans. And that was Sonia. What they didn't know, the Americans, was that, in fact, each of these spies going into Germany was a diehard communist. And so the Americans thought that they were spying for them. They were, in fact, spying for Moscow. But that was how I came across that. And then I spooled back from that initial discovery to find this incredible story that takes us from China to Weimar, Germany, to Berlin, to Poland, to Switzerland, to Britain, and then finally back behind the Iron Curtain. And she's a remarkable woman. Her name was Ursula Kuczynski, but she came by many, many names. Agent Sonia was just one of the code names she operated under, and she ended up living under a completely different name and a completely different identity in a completely different country. So she's hard to track down, Ursula, but it's a fascinating journey, I think. You also had access to her diaries. You had access to her correspondence. And also, you mentioned never-before-seen information on her spying. And also, her surviving children helped you with this book. In truth, I would not have been able to write this book without the help of two of her three surviving children. They were extraordinarily generous to me. Initially somewhat suspicious, understandably. Biography is burglary. But in the end, they simply handed over their entire archive, which contained letters and diaries and postcards and poems and thousands of photographs amassed by Ursula during the course of her life. But also, crucially, unpublished manuscripts. There were a whole series of they purported to be fiction. In reality, that was her way of getting around the East German censors. These were autobiography and extraordinarily revealing they were too. And it allowed me to tell her story through her own words. And that was extraordinary benefit. And there were various other sources too that came to light in the course of the research. MI5, the British Security Service, has released recently its files on Ursula and her family. Those make fascinating reading. Mm -hmm. There are FBI files on her. There are many Russian files on her, some of which I've had access to. But fascinatingly, also the East German Stasi, the terrifying East German secret police, spied on Ursula in the latter part of her life. And those files also are, are available. 
So it turned out there was, in fact, an enormous amount of material on it, including, and this always makes me laugh when I tell people, Ursula wrote a sort of memoir in the 1970s of her life, which she presented to the East German authorities and said, I would like to publish it. And they took one look at it, and they were quite a prudish organisation, the Stasi. They took one look at this and said, well, you can't possibly publish this. This is all about her love life and her extramarital affairs and the children she had out of wedlock. You can't have that. So they took out all the most interesting bits and allowed her to publish what was left, which was essentially turned out to be a sort of really a communist piece of propaganda. But being the Stasi, of course, they kept the original. So the original manuscript, with all of their attempts to censor it, is still in the Stasi archive. So I was able to put back into the story all the stuff that the Stasi tried to take out. There were a couple of moments where Sonia is really underestimated. People are saying, well, who would ever think that a new mother would be a spy. And well, guess what? Here she is in Shanghai and she is learning her tradecraft. She's running around with Agnes Smedley, which is a name Mm. I hadn't heard in a really long time. Would you explain to listeners who Agnes is? Of course. This is really where the start of the story is, because Ursula had become a communist in Weimar, Germany. She was the daughter of a a wealthy Jewish family. Uh, And like many uh, on the left, she saw communism as being the only way to defeat Nazism. So so she was a sort of anti-fascist at heart. But she got into espionage really by accident. She and her husband, Rudy, who was a, a very good architect, he was of the left, but he wasn't a communist, wound up in Shanghai. Now, Shanghai in the 1920s was an absolutely extraordinary place. It was a strange melting pot of 50,000 foreigners and some 5 million Chinese living in pretty much abject poverty. It was the birthplace of the Chinese Communist Party. The Westerners lived in great style, actually, in considerable comfort in their separate areas of influence. That They ran large chunks of Shanghai. And Rudy was taken on as an architect for the British Municipal Council. So he was working for the Brits in China. And it was at that point that Ursula met the woman you've just mentioned, Agnes Smedley. Now, if you'd been a a fiction reader in the 1920s, you would definitely know about Agnes Smedley. She was the best-selling author of a a novel called Daughter of Earth, which was a radical left-wing semi-autobiographical account of her life. And it did incredibly well. It It sold in buckets. And Ursula and she wound up at the same time in Shanghai. They met to have a cup of tea in one of the largest hotels in Shanghai. And what Ursula soon discovered, that not only was Agnes Smedley a very famous novelist, she was also a spy. She had been recruited by the Comintern, the sort of espionage wing of the Comintern, the the communist influence-extending organisation, and she recruited Ursula. She, She recruited her to the Red Army Intelligence Agency, and she did that via a man who plays a critical part in this story, whose name was Ricard Sorge. Now, Sorge was described by none other than Ian Fleming as being the most formidable spy in history. He was also an extremely adept seducer. And he and Ursula, she just had her first baby, had a tumultuous and torrid affair in Shanghai. Didn't last very long, but he was both her recruiter and her lover. And it's the intertwining in many ways of the romantic and the ideological in Ursula's life that gives it this extraordinary power, I think, in lots of ways. And and Ricard Sorge, she clearly loved him deeply and loved him really to the end of a very long life. When she died at the age of 93, one of the very few photographs she had on the wall of her study was a photograph of Ricard Sorge. He was long dead. And their affair only lasted uh, six months or so, 
But he brought her into this clandestine world of espionage, and she really never looked back. She started off really using the apartment in Shanghai as a safe house for Sorge to meet his underground spies, because the other thing that very few people will know, really, and that I certainly didn't know before I started researching this book, was that secretly in Shanghai, a ferocious civil war was taking place between the nationalist government and the underground communist movement. And the communists were being bankrolled by the Soviet Union. So Ursula's job, along with Ricard Sorge, was to really just finance, support, help, aid this underground communist partisan movement. It was incredibly dangerous. If she had been caught by the Chinese nationalist authorities, she would undoubtedly have been first tortured and then killed. So the stakes couldn't have been higher. And she loved it. She absolutely loved it. Because like all spies, though Ursula would maintain that her actions were entirely driven by ideological and political conviction, she was also, as most spies are, an adventure junkie. I mean, she absolutely loved the thrill of the secret life. And secrets are addictive. Uh, They're also highly toxic. And once you have been hooked, as Ursula was completely hooked by the secret spy world, it's an addiction that is very hard to give up. And it, like drugs, can do enormous damage. And so that was really the birth of Ursula's story as a spy begins in Shanghai in 1929, where by day she appears to be a dutiful wife of a colonial official, but in fact she's helping to run a huge spy ring. And so you mentioned at the beginning of your question her gender. And the, the reality is that throughout her spying career, Ursula ruthlessly exploited the advantage of her gender because she was invisible as a housewife and a mother and apparently dutiful figure. She was almost literally invisible, not just to the Chinese authorities, but then to the Japanese and then to the Nazis, the Gestapo, the FBI, MI6. None of them could really see her for what she actually was for the simple reason that she was a woman and women don't do spying, which of course they do, and brilliantly. Her second posting was to Manchuria after the Japanese had invaded China. And that's a particularly fraught moment in Chinese history. And again, you spoke of the danger while she was in Shanghai, but now the Japanese are involved and she has no protection as a German citizen. She's also there with her son. It's an extraordinary piece of the story, really. If it was dangerous in Shanghai, it was absolutely beyond peril in in Mm -hmm. Japanese-occupied Manchuria. So she was Mm -hmm. there. She'd been trained by this point in Moscow in radio technical stuff. She was a brilliant technician, Mm -hmm. quite apart from anything else. She built herself with the assistance of another Soviet agent. The two of them built this quite powerful radio transmitter and began transmitting messages to and from the anti-Japanese communist partisans, the people who are fighting a guerrilla war in the mountains against the Japanese. It was spectacularly dangerous. If the Kempitai, the Japanese secret police, had got hold of her, that would have been it. And again, of course, she has a tiny child with her. Her son, Michael, who I met in his 90s, was three years old at this point. I think an interesting question that that some of my readers find difficult, and I struggled with a bit, which is that And and Ursula herself struggles with, which is trying to reconcile what she saw as her ideological commitment, her duty, if you like, and her responsibilities as a wife and a mother, particularly as a mother. She spent the rest of her life wondering whether she had been a good spy, but a bad mother. And that really began in Manchuria. There's a moment that she describes, and it's absolutely hair-raising, where she climbed onto the roof of the little house that she had in Manchuria. 
And she climbed onto the roof and erected two bamboo aerials at either end, at either gable, in the middle of the night. And at this point, the baby started crying down in the house below. And she knew she was up on the roof. And she knew that if the baby woke up the caretaker, the caretaker would see her on the roof. She'd be arrested. It would all come out. And that would be the end of that. So it's a perfect moment when her motherhood and her espionage came into absolutely direct conflict. And here she is, a core member of the Soviet spy mechanism in China. And then she gets sent to Warsaw. And suddenly everything is boring. Yeah, She's essentially not even a messenger. She's just sort of tucked in the corner and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll come back to you. We'll come back. We, yeah. we, we'll figure out what to do with you in a little bit. But then she gets to Switzerland. Yeah. This is her plum posting, if you like. Mm-hmm. And Switzerland, the start of the Second World War, was a kind of hotbed of spies. Because it was a neutral country, bang in the middle of Europe, everybody was pouring their spies in there, American, French, German, Italian, and Soviet. And Ursula's job there, she now had two children, one by her first husband, the other by her lover, Johann Patra, who had been her colleague and friend lover in Churia. So there she is, and the marriage is broken up. She's a single parent with two children. But meanwhile, she has built in the bedroom of her little Swiss chalet up in the up in the mountains above Lake Geneva. She had built a radio transmitter with which she was running the largest spy ring inside Nazi Germany. It's a story that's never been told before, but she was the chief coordinator of a network of spies, including two Brits that she herself had recruited, who were ferreting out secrets from underneath the Third Reich. And she was then crossing the border into Switzerland and she was sending them back to Moscow. So she was absolutely pivotal at this point. It was very nearly the summit of her career. Again, incredibly dangerous. The Swiss were neutral, but they were not in favour of espionage. And if she had been caught, she would probably, almost certainly, have been deported back to Nazi Germany, where, as a Jew, she and her family would have been liquidated. So she was again facing not only death for herself, but also for her family. And that's another sort of tricky moment, but she was very, very good at it. I mean, the reality is that by this point, she'd already been awarded the Order of the Red Banner, which is the highest Soviet military decoration you can get. Lenin had one. Trotsky had one. They didn't hand them out willy-nilly. She would end up with two. She was already being promoted through the ranks of Soviet Red Army intelligence. She was a major by this point and would end up as a colonel. Now, there was no woman in any intelligence agency that ever has risen, risen that high. And one of the reasons I think that she was so highly thought of back in Moscow was that she had come up with a plan, believe it or not, to assassinate Hitler. Again, it's one of the untold stories that I have being told in this book, but it's an amazing chapter. At this point, too, when she's in Switzerland, her family has escaped Nazi Germany. They're in the UK. And her older brother, Jürgen, is... Can we talk about Jürgen for a second? Because he's kind of fascinating the way he pops up in his sister's story. Well, he's a fascinating figure. He was the eldest child of the Kaczynski family. Then there was Ursula, and then there were five other girls... And he was absolutely the apple of his parents' eye. He was also a communist. He was also a spy for the Soviets. He had been recruited by Ursula herself. And fascinating, I think, at the heart of this story, there is a certain sibling rivalry. And the fact that Jürgen was consistently favoured by his parents was one of the motors that drove Ursula, because she was damned if she was going to allow 
her brother to eclipse her in any way. There was nothing she felt that a, a man could do that she couldn't do equally as well, if not better. And so there was quite a funny tussle that goes on between them throughout this. But she would recruit Jürgen. She recruited her father, Robert. They would all end up as her informants, knowingly or unknowingly. Well, possibly unknowingly on the part of her father, but certainly knowingly on the part of her brother. They were all part of the Sonia network. That network was almost brought down by the nanny. Yes. I mean, this is one of the more comical and also bizarre aspects of this story. Ursula brought with her to Switzerland the elderly German nanny who had brought her up in Weimar. So this was a woman already in sort of late middle age. She looked after the kids wonderfully. She pretty much knew exactly what Ursula was up to. She wasn't herself a communist, but she knew perfectly well that her employer had built a transmitter and was using it to send messages. She also knew she was a communist. Now, the problem happened when Ursula obtained a British passport. Ursula's German passport was running out. As a Jew, she wasn't going to get another one. And so she married, initially as a marriage of convenience, it actually became a very solid and long-lasting marriage, an Englishman called Len Burton, who was also one of her spy recruits. This way she obtained a passport. And poor old Olga Moot, who was the nanny, became convinced that Ursula was going to abscond back to Britain and leave her in the lurch. She'd become very, very attached to Ursula's younger child. And Olga decided this wasn't going to happen. And so she hatched a plan to betray Ursula, to go to the British authorities in Switzerland. It was a crackpot plan, actually. I mean, the idea was that she would go to the British authorities, explain that her employer was a spy, then they wouldn't issue her with a passport, and they could all live happily ever after. The problem with this was that she turned up at the British embassy not speaking a single word of English and began sort of shouting at the consular officials in a sort of mixture of Polish and German. They didn't understand a word she was saying and sent her away again. Ursula got wind of the fact of what the nanny was up to. And that night with Len, they discussed whether to murder the nanny. I don't think Ursula would have been able to do it. She was not the killing type. There was no blood on her hands. Len, on the other hand, was a very tough nut. He had fought in the Spanish Civil War. I think he was seriously considering whether that would be the way to solve this. In fact, they hatched another plot to leave Olga there and to get to Britain. So they managed to escape the threat of the nanny. They do eventually get to Britain and they settle in a very tiny town. Or is can it even be called a town? It's a village no, of 243 people. <laughs> it's a tiny little place. Let me paint you a little picture because okay. it, it is a strange moment. Had you been to the tiny Cotswold village of Great Rollwright in 1943, you might have seen Mrs. Burton, Mrs. Len Burton, hopping on her bike, doing her shopping with her three children by this point. And she appeared to be a perfectly innocuous refugee housewife. She baked particularly good cake. She attended church every Sunday. She appeared to be completely assimilated into a rural, very quiet British way of life. In fact, in the privy, in the outside toilet in the back garden, she had built a very powerful radio transmitter with which she was sending the secret of the atomic bomb to Moscow. Now, that sounds like an exaggeration, but it, it really isn't, because this was absolutely the high point of Ursula's espionage career. By this point, and this runs from about 1943 until about 1947, she was running 
whole series of spies inside the British Atomic Weapons Program, which, of course, preceded the American Atomic Weapons Program and would eventually be folded into the Manhattan Project. But really, the pioneering work on developing the atomic bomb was being done in Britain. And in particular, Ursula had a spy called Klaus Fuchs, probably the most important of the so-called atom spies. He was the one who unloaded the mother load on all of this. He was a communist, he was a German, and Ursula ran him brilliantly. They would meet every few months, they would meet in a little village called Banbury. He would often physically hand over the blueprints of where they were getting to on developing the atomic weapon. Much of this stuff was so technically complicated that Ursula couldn't send it by radio. She sent what she could. The rest she would have to leave in a so-called dead drop site in the spy jargon or a dead letterbox, which was a hollow tree outside Great Rollwright where the material would be collected by her Soviet handler, a Soviet spy operating under diplomatic cover in the Soviet embassy in London, and then it would be sent back in the diplomatic bag, and it would end up on Stalin's desk. I mean, they did a sort of inventory after the war, assessing how much material Fuchs had sent over, and it amounted to something like 590 pages of documents. So when the Soviets developed their atomic weapon, when they detonated it uh, in 1949, that was largely down to Mrs. Burton of Great Rollwright. And her neighbours had no idea. Her neighbours had not a clue. No one had a clue that this completely innocuous figure on her bike was really the Soviet super spy operating in their midst. But MI5, the British security service, was beginning to have questions about the Kaczynski family. Uh, These had been running for some time. Indeed, when MI5 finally declassified the files on the Kaczynski family, there were 73 individual investigation files on the whole clan because they'd all moved to Britain. They were all known to be German communists. They were all under suspicion. But time and again, the male investigators of this case believed that the men were suspicious but completely ignored the women. Most notably, Ursula, who was the linchpin of the whole thing. In fact, there's a hilarious document in one of the MI5 files written by one of the investigators that says, we've looked into Mrs. Burton and we've concluded that it cannot possibly be her because she's far too busy with her domestic duties. They completely fell for the idea that she was so busy making cakes and and looking after her kids that she couldn't possibly be running a spy ring. But they were getting closer. There's no doubt that they were beginning to hone in. It is my belief that it really only a woman would have been able to see through Ursula's disguise. And there was only one woman at that point in MI5. And she went by the unimprovable name of Millicent Baggett. Now, if you invented a fictional character inside MI5, you'd probably call them Millicent Baggett. And Millicent Baggett was the only woman in the counterintelligence section of MI5. And she repeatedly said to her male bosses and colleagues, you need to look into Ursula. We need to tap her phone. We need to intercept her mail. And at every step, the men said, no, we don't have to. You you mentioned um, John le Carre at the beginning. Well, Millicent Baggett did achieve fame of an immortal sort in the fact that she became the model for Connie Sachs in the John le Carre stories. So while she was completely ignored by her male colleagues, David Cornwall, also known as John le Carre, who worked with her in MI5, lent her this extraordinarily long literary afterlife. Is this when Kim Philby makes his first appearance in Ursula's story? Or that's later, isn't it? No, no. Kim Philby does turn up in in a sort of strange peripheral role in this Mm -hmm. story. Now, Kim Philby was the great 
double agent, the KGB agent deep inside British military intelligence, who probably did more damage to British intelligence than any other individual, really. And he was consulted about the Ursula Kaczynski case. There was a moment when he was asked, as, a, as the MI6 representative, whether he had anything in the files that might be of interest on this. And he sent back an exquisitely polite memo that was completely unhelpful. It said, I, we will look into this in due course, but I really see no cause for concern. Now, either this was Kim Philby doing what he always did, which was simply not to help when there was a matter of uncovering somebody in the ranks who might be dodgy, or it's something more active. I mean, it's possible that he knew that Ursula Kaczynski was, in fact, Agent Sonia, a key figure for the Soviet intelligence network, and he was asked to head off the investigators of the past. We'll probably never know until and unless Vladimir Putin decides to release the files. <laughs> so we won't be holding our breath. Well, it's very interesting. When she died, Ursula was hailed by Russia, by Putin as being a kind of hero of the sort of Soviet intelligence service. So it's conceivable that at some point, more, I suspect, than for sort of propaganda reasons than for his interest in history, Putin might release these files. Hmm. This brings us to Operation Hammer. The Americans have gone out to say, let's find some, some Germans who have left, send them back to Germany and have them spy. These were good Germans. That was, okay. that was how they were described in okay. the files. And, and many of them were refugees from Nazi Germany who'd gone into exile in Britain. They were fanatically anti-Nazi, a lot of them. And the, the American idea was quite simply to use them because, of course, they would be instantly disguised if they landed successfully in, in the Reich. Use them to send back important information that could be used to help the Allied armies advancing on Berlin. That was the essence of it. It was to send back information that the American army could use on the ground in the sort of dying days. It was not intended to help the Soviet Union, who were, of course, at this point, still allied with Britain and America. But that is exactly what happened, because, in fact, all the people that were recruited were done through Ursula, and they were all diehard communists, committed to the causes she was. So just to give you one example, one of the things they landed with was a, was a highly technical piece of equipment that would actually form the basis of a walkie-talkie, which was a way for the spies on the ground to communicate with planes in the air. It was an absolutely revolutionary piece of kit developed by the Americans. It was highly sophisticated. It was incredibly secret. And these spies landed equipped with these things and immediately handed them over to the Soviets. This brilliant, highly funded, very elaborate really rather brilliant plot was pulled below the waterline before it began. We're not spoiling anything by letting you know that Ursula enjoyed a very long life and actually had a second career as a novelist, which we are going to come back to. But MI5 was very close to uncovering her at this point, around the time of Operation Hammer. That's right. The crunch came for Ursula when Klaus Fuchs, the German spy that I mentioned within the Atomic Weapons Program, who had by this point moved to America to join the Manhattan Project and was bleeding the secrets from that, and then moved back to Britain, and he was finally captured. He was finally arrested. And Ursula knew that with his trial coming up, and he was a pretty eccentric figure, Klaus Fuchs, she was pretty sure that he would have to reveal her name. And so she realized that she was going to have to get out of Britain, that she would have to make her escape. We won't spoil it by saying how she did that, but it's a pretty remarkable moment. And she did manage to get out and to make a new life for herself. She also did something 
very remarkable, which is, again, unique in my experience. She resigned from Soviet intelligence. Now, she was back in East Germany. She was behind the Iron Curtain. She was obviously under a communist regime. And the Soviets simply assumed that she would continue spying for them. And instead, she said, I've had enough. I've done this for 20 years, and I've risked my life, and I'm out of here. Now, the Soviet military intelligence, the, the GRU, the military arm of the KGB, is a very difficult club to join. It's a virtually impossible club to leave intact, because if you leave it, you're assumed to be a traitor. You're assumed to be disloyal. On the contrary, and again, I think this is a mark of the esteem with which Ursula was held in Soviet intelligence circles. She was simply allowed to walk out with all the secrets that she had. She was allowed to go into civilian life and to reinvent herself. She'd lived under so many identities already. She now became someone completely different. She changed her name to Ruth Werner, a name she completely plucked at random and became a highly successful children's novelist. She's been described as the East German equivalent of Enid Blyton. She sold lots and lots of copies of her books. In fact, if you'd been a child growing up uh, in the 1950s and 60s in East Germany, you would certainly have read the works of Ruth Werner. They are thinly disguised East German communist propaganda, and they're quite dull in large parts, but boy, did they sell. Indeed, they were more or less distributed free in state schools in East Germany. And she became far more famous as a novelist than she would ever become as a spy. She's still really, if you were brought up in East Germany, she's still a household name. Do you have a favorite moment from this book? There are so many moments when I thought, what kind of metal do you have to have to do this, to keep your nerve? And I I suppose I think it is that early moment when she's very young. I mean, she's still in her early 20s and she's in Japanese-occupied Manchuria and she can hear planes going overhead with newly installed high-tech Japanese detectors that could pick up radio transmissions from the ground. And knowing that she only had to be picked up by one of these for the knock on the door to happen, her child to be taken away, and she would be murdered. That's an amazing moment for me. The essence of Ursula is quite complicated. She is not a one-dimensional heroine. She's not James Bond with with a gun in her handbag. She's much more interesting and complicated than that. And for some readers, I think the idea that a mother would be prepared to put herself and her family in jeopardy in this way is a difficult thing to get our heads around because these are actions that today we find quite difficult. You know, the idea that someone would be prepared to do that. On the other hand, that is the story of the 20th century. This was a time of such brutal ideological conflict that people on either side of the moral divide were prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice for themselves and for others. And I'm not calling on people to admire Ursula in lots of ways. I mean, she served and came to realize that she had served a brutal Stalinist regime. Millions died under Stalinism. Ursula didn't discover this until the 1950s and was deeply, deeply shocked when she did. But she was a Stalinist herself. She had always followed the party line. So it makes her a complicated person. Mm -hmm. You know, so for the first half of her life, she's a ferocious anti-fascist plotting to kill Hitler. We're completely on her side. Come 1945 and the Cold War and history pivots around her, if you like. She's on the other side. She's now stealing the secrets from the West to give to the Soviet Union, which having been our ally during the war, is now our enemy in the Cold War. So I think that's in a way what I find so fascinating about her. She was born 
very soon after the Bolshevik Revolution, and she died after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So her story incorporates and encapsulates in some ways the whole of communism, from its crystal ideological birth to its sclerotic and hopeless collapse at the end of the 20th century. So I think she's a way of exploring what communism, with all its complexities and confusions and and brutalities and, and contradictions, what it was actually really about, but through a human prism. Did anything surprise you while you were writing? Yes, Ursula is very clear-eyed about herself. That is quite rare among spies. Spies are tremendous fabulous. They love to make up their past. They love to gloss over what they've done. They love to present themselves. They're also tremendously indiscreet, in my experience. They also love telling a particular story because, of course, that's what spies do. They create an alternative reality and they try and lure the truth towards it. It's why spies make such good novelists on the whole. Ursula is much more self-critical. She looks at herself through quite a bleak eye, particularly in her sort of private writings. I don't know if she ever intended them to be published. She is quite honest about her own failings, her own limitations, her own challenges, how difficult it was to be a woman in these circumstances. And it makes her, in many ways, a very modern figure, I think. Particularly when it comes to her emotional and her romantic and sexual life, she is a very modern creature. She had three children by three different men. She loved widely and she loved emphatically. And and it makes her quite interesting. And the way she writes about it is, to modern ears, rather remarkable because it's a voice you don't often find in the middle of the 20th century. I think that was what really surprised me. Spies are not often very honest people. She's a very honest spy. What do you love most about writing spy stories? The whole background of espionage is so bizarre and so extraordinary. And you get these extraordinary characters that are sort of thrown up by this world. And it allows one to write, I think, about the kinds of subject that are normally commandeered by novelists. Novelists write about loyalty and love and betrayal and romance and adventure, all the things that we love to read about. But in the spy world, if you get the right amount of material, these are true. These are true stories that read, if you're lucky, that you can try and make read like fiction. So not a word is made up. Nonetheless, I hope sometimes it has the feel of a kind of flowing narrative that sort of takes you on from one moment to the next. That's not unique to spy stories, but it happens, I think, more often that the warp and weft of the sort of research that you can do in this area allows one to tell a story where you can almost moment by moment, you can describe what happened. So you love the hunt. This is all about the hunt for you, isn't it? It is. I mean, listen, it sounds bizarre, but there's no greater thrill for me than the many few greater thrills than, than sitting in a dusty archive and suddenly thinking, wow, I can now tell this story minute by minute. I can tell readers what the coffee smelled like and what she was thinking as she stood up and looked out of the window. That's gold dust to narrative nonfiction. That's, that's the wonderful thing about it. Um, I promised one of our booksellers in Fairfax, Virginia, that I would ask you a question. Scarlett Rose, who's a CCS and a bookseller for us, and as I mentioned, she's in Fairfax, Virginia. She referenced an interview you did with The Guardian where you said you wish you'd written The Great Gatsby. And that is one of her all-time favorite books. So she's wondering if you're ever going to flip over to writing spy fiction. Uh, Well, it's yes. I mean, I have thought about it inevitably. I suppose my hesitation is that, as I sort of was trying to explain now, the riches in the nonfiction are so great. 
there, there's such a pleasure in being able to write something that people read almost as if it is a novel by knowing that it isn't, that actually to, to make it all up, well, first of all, I don't know where I'd stop. My grip on reality is pretty tenuous anyway. So if I was unleashed in a totally fictional world, I don't think I'd ever come back. And secondly, that it would sort of slightly undermine in some ways the non-fiction work that I do. I, I sort of feel that certain reasons might look at it and go, well, hang on, if he's making that up, what else has he made up? And the answer is that I never make anything up. And of course, if you do start making things up in a work of history, you're already a novelist. So I'm inclined to try to keep the line very clear. That said, there are certain subjects that even in spying, you never really know the truth about. And so therefore, fiction may be the next move. I don't dismiss it. But to be honest, I've got so many lovely spy stories I want to write first. I'm not sure I'm going to get there soon. And we would like to read them. What are you reading and recommending these days? All sorts of things, really. I mean, I, I read a lot for work. Most of my reading these days, because, you know, one is on the next book and, you know, one is producing all of that, is to do with my work. But I've read some spectacularly fascinating things. This yep. may sound like an odd recommendation, but but I've been reading the diaries of Henry Chips Channon, who was an American who moved in very high society in the middle years of the 20th century and wrote a wonderful diary of what was going on. It's wonderful in the sense that it's incredibly snobbish. It's very bitchy. It's extremely revealing and it's very funny and at times he's completely repulsive but as a sort of window into British high society it's incredibly captivating a less likely book but one I've really enjoyed is something believe it or not called the gospel of the eels which, which is about the life cycle of the eel I know that sounds the most unlikely subject but it's one of nature's last great mysteries it's by Patrick Svensson and I I thoroughly recommend it I've been absolutely loving that book uh, and recommending it to anyone anyone who will listen and in fiction I've been going back to some old favorites the recent death of John le Carre David Cornwall who was a great friend of mine has sent me back to his works. And my goodness, they're good. I mean, nobody does the psychology, well, to coin a phrase, nobody does it better, but the uh, the psychology of intelligence and espionage and a particular kind of British male sensibility, he is absolutely still the best at that, I think. I agree completely. Is there anything we missed about Agent Sonia? Some people are, are interested in the impact on her family. So Ursula, when she's leaving Britain, Michael's in college, he's 19, and she only takes the younger children. And you met with him later in life, obviously, when you were researching this book. What was the impact on her family? I'm sure it was pretty serious for him, but what about his siblings? What about her siblings? There is a cost to espionage. There's a cost to secrecy. We think of these stories sometimes as if they're sort of rather simple moral fables in which the, the goodies always survive and, and come out best and the baddies always. And of course, life isn't like that. And, and espionage certainly isn't like that. And I said at the beginning that secrecy is pretty toxic. And for the family, it was a pretty devastating discovery. And they didn't discover it until they were already middle-aged that their mother was someone completely different from the woman they had grown up with. They knew nothing about her espionage career until Michael was 35. It came as a complete bolt from the blue for all of them. And I think they never really recovered from it. And I met Michael many times. Uh, he was incredibly helpful and generous. And he read the manuscript of this book shortly before he died at the age of 93. Uh, he never saw the, the finished article as a book, but he did read it. He said two things that really moved me at the time. The first of them was he said, I feel I know my mother now in a way that I never knew her 
when she was living. And he said, I lived in a family that was absolutely suffused with secrecy. He said, I think maybe that had an effect on me. He said, look, I've been married and divorced three times. I wonder if I ever really learned to trust anybody. So I found that very poignant and very sort of self-knowing, particularly as it was probably one of the last things he, he wrote. So there is a cost to these stories. Well, war destroys wherever it goes. But espionage, and particularly espionage during wartime, that can leave a really indelible mark on the soul, I think. What's next for you? I'm deep in a new book, oddly appropriate for lockdown, actually. I'm in a new book about Kolditz, the great prisoner of war camp, and the most famous of all the wartime prisoner of war camps. It contained Brits and Americans and Poles and French and so on. And it's part of mythology, Kolditz, because it has such a hold on the sort of historical imagination, particularly in Britain. But the reality of Kolditz was very, very different from the legend. And what I'm loving doing is sort of digging in, literally and metaphorically, into what it was like to be a prisoner at this time. And it's a long, long way from The Great Escape and the other great mythological histories of wartime incarceration. It's a fascinating way of looking at kind of a, a sort of microcosm of general society in an enormous medieval castle in East Germany. It sounds like another bestseller to me. I do hope so. <laughs> that would be lovely. Ben McIntyre, thank you so much. Agent Sonia is out in paperback. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.